we move on to our third speaker, who's a laboratory favourite, Dr George Aranda. He's a research fellow at Deakin University, conducting research uh, into science education, science communication, and putting 3D printers into primary schools. He is president of the Victoria chapter of the Australian Science Communicators and curator of the blog Science Book of the Day. Science Book a Day. George. A little bit of a maze to get on stage tonight. It's nice to have a lovely audience here. Usually I don't get this many first-year students turning up to my lectures. <laughs> and if they do, they're typically Facebooking while I'm talking. Okay, now my presentation tonight is perhaps the most villainous presentation you will hear tonight. <laughs> I'm talking about a fictional scientist in this case, something a little different. They let me go with the fictional scientist. So I'm talking about Victor Frankenstein tonight. And what better kind of guy to talk about at a Halloween special? Unless maybe death, perhaps, but I don't know. Now, I'm going to talk about Victor Frankenstein, and I'm going to talk about the monster. Because in the story of Frankenstein, the two of them are so important. Two sides of the same coin. Now, I want to make the first distinction that the big green guy that you might have seen, tallish, flat head, bolts in the side of his neck, is the monster. In the book and in the films, he's never given a name. But over time, we've called him Frankenstein, or Frankie, if you're on a first-name basis with him. Now, Frankenstein was written in... Well, Frankenstein, or rather, its complete title, Frankenstein, or the Modern Prometheus, was published in 1818 by a 21-year-old Mary Shelley. Now, a classic story about the origin of the book is that it was written in what was called The Year Without Summer, which referred to a rainy summer in 1816 where a volcanic winter had occurred because of a volcanic eruption the year before. So basically, Shelley and some friends were stuck indoors, as you do, at the villa of Lord Byron. Not a bad. And so they were stuck inside most of the time and they were reading each other German ghost stories because we all know German ghost stories are the most hideous ones you can read. <laughs> and Lord Byron came up with a challenge for each of his friends, which included Percy Shelley, who was going to be uh, Mary Shelley's husband eventually, to come up with the scariest ghost story that they could come up with. Now, it took her a couple of days to think of something, but she had heard about the studies of Galvani, known as Galvanism, which I'll talk about a little later on, and she thought that this kind of science could be used to reanimate a corpse. And so over the course of this summer, she developed the first few chapters of what would become perhaps the most well-known horror story of the last 200 years. Now, there's a few things I'm going to cover in this story, so I'm going to go through the plot a little bit. So there's going to be spoilers, I'm sorry. <laughs> but quite frankly, the book's been out for 200 years, so if you haven't gotten around to reading it, it's your own fault. Now, I focus mainly on the book itself and some of the films that really stuck to the true story. So there will be no mentions of The Son of Frankenstein. There will be no mentions of Frankenstein versus the Wolfman. <laughs> and my personal favourite of recent memory, Frankenweenie, which is the story of a young Frankenstein reanimating his dead dog. As you do. So at the start of the story, Victor is from Geneva and he's on his way to uni. You know, first year uni graduates and that kind of thing. And his mother dies, and it really leaves him bereft. And this is really seen to be the impetus 
of him creating, you know, raising the dead, as you would. Studies at the University of Ingolstadt are going relatively well, and he's putting together the monster. Now, in the book, there are no details about how he does this. I was really looking forward to that, because in the movies, we have the whole, he's in an attic, the doors open, thunderbolts and lightning, very, very frightening me. <laughs> Body goes up, lightning occurs, and there's a stirring of hands. But in the book, all she says is, and he assembled the body. <laughs> Jibbed! But it's really, it's really a good indication of how we revise our memory by the, the subsequent stories of Frankenstein. Now, Frankenstein has realized what he's done. And as soon as he sees the creature alive, he's horrified. And he does what any of us would do, run. He ran like Forrest Gump across a football field, just straight line out there. But to his luck, when he came back, the monster had gone. Awesome. <laughs> now, realizing what he's done and the monster's out on the loose, he gets sick. He practically swoons, which is something that he does quite often in the book. Now, in the book, I mean, if you've seen the 1931 Boris Karloff film, he doesn't say a thing. But in the book, you just can't shut him up. He talks and talks and talks. Nearly half the book is from the perspective of the monster. He hides out, and the monster um, en encounters prejudice and hatred wherever he goes, and he eventually hides out by observing a family. He's a bit of a voyeur, really, and he, he watches them for two years, and in that process learns how to speak, talk, write, does a little poetry on the side, that kind of thing. But... After that time, he kills Victor's younger brother, trying to lure his creator out. And eventually the two have a confrontation. And the monster asks his creator, if you can make me a companion. And so freaking out slightly. I mean, we've all gone on bad dates, haven't we? And you have that moment, you're at the pub, oh my god, she's here. But he's created a monster. The monster's found me. And so he agrees to make this companion, reluctantly. And the condition is, if... Frankenstein doesn't create the companion, the monster's going to kill the rest of his family. You know, some terms and conditions are quite important. So reluctantly, Frankenstein agrees. But near completion of the companion, he kind of freaks out and he thinks that, oh my God, we could have a whole society of monsters if I allow this to happen. So he destroys the companion in front of Frankenstein, at which point the monster fulfills his promise and kills everyone, like in a gangster movie. He kills all his family and it just leaves the two of them pursuing each other for the rest of the story. Frankenstein swoons at this point as well, and then chases the monster to the northern parts of Europe, and eventually he just gets fatigued, swoons again, and dies, at which point the monster is bereft. He's lost his creator, his master, and he vows to kill himself in the north. That's the basic story of Frankenstein. So if you've seen derivations of that story, that's the classic version. Now, from the quick summary I gave you, you might think of Frankenstein as a gothic horror, and it is, but it's also a tragedy. Frankenstein creates the monster with the idea that he's going to save humanity from death, but he creates something that he sees as horrible. But worse, he creates the creature and then neglects it, leaving it to fend for himself in a harsh human world. But worst of all, he doesn't tell anyone if you're going to create the undead, you might want to tell somebody that you've done that. <laughs> oh, people are being knocked off. My family are all dying. Oh, well. 
But basically, you know the moment that Victor runs out of the room that he's done for. There's no coming back from that. Now, there are a couple of things that Victor gives us. He's the classic scientist, isn't he? And he gives us two things. First of all, Victor gives us the idea of the naive scientist. And this is a scientific archetype we're all familiar with. This is the scientist that is so impassioned by the topic of their study, they really fail to grasp the implications of what they're doing. Or if they do realize them, they can't resist the temptation and the danger of doing it. In literature, we have lots of examples of this. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is an obvious example. Hell, even Avengers 2 had Tony Stark in it, who did the same kind of thing. The other type of scientific archetype that he gives us is our favorite one the mad scientist. The mad scientist is like the naive scientist, but any ethical or moral lines you might draw about something, don't do that, don't kill that, the mad scientist just blithely goes right through and he goes right through without a second thought, sorry, mental blank there. The scientist is, in the case of our stories, is so pervasive, you'll find him everywhere. You'll find him in Pinky and the Brain, is a good example of a mad scientist. You'll find him in the, Doctor, the island of Dr. Moreau. You'll find him even in Doc Brown from Back to the Future, who was around town a couple of weeks ago, you may have seen. Or you can pick your own James Bond villain for a kind of a mad scientist kind of idea. But of course, the monster himself has given us, ve given us many tropes of science fiction. He's given us the idea of lightning and spectacular things happening during a storm. But he's also given us the idea of anyone who is created by an individual or a group of individuals traces back to the monster. I'm sure we can even go a bit further back in time to maybe the golem of Judaic stories, but it's arguably, arguably the first instance of science being responsible for creating new life. And we have this we get the story told to us again and again. So whether it's Rocky, created by Frankenfurter in the Rocky Horror Picture Show, is a Frankenstein kind of monster. Or even if you're creating Kelly LeBrock in Weird Science, you've had a Frankenstein moment there as well. But the most important part of the story in terms of the monster is an examination of who the monster is in the story. Now in Shelley's telling of it, the monster is a good creature at the start, but he goes out into the harsh world and is abused by humans wherever he goes. Hell, even in one part of the story, he saves a little girl from drowning, only to get shot by the dad's father when he finds him later on. How harsh is that? Now, in the story of Frankenstein, Shelley isn't saying that isn't saying that the monster is a monster when he's first created. He only becomes a monster from what humanity does to him with its indifference and abuse. Now, the story of Frankenstein is a good example of great science fiction. So it does three things. One, it gives you a plausible example of the science of the time, what might happen. And galvanism, as I was talk talking a little earlier before, is basically the application of electricity to get animals moving. And, and during Mary Shelley's time, there were lots of examples, public demonstrations, of electricity being applied to get frogs to move their limbs and eyes would open and close and that kind of thing. And in one particular example, so much electricity was applied that the person just sat up straight. So it's really easy to see where the elements of the story come in. The second part of good science fiction is giving a humanist critique of what's happened. There are no gods in this story. Everything that happens 
to the people, the monster, Frankenstein, they're all because of human hands and human suffering and indifference. And the third part is really giving a viable prediction of what will happen in the use of science and technology in this way. And I would also add that this is, it's important to see within the context of the culture of the time. Now, in the time of Mary Shelley, reanimating the dead was quite something. Today, we just call them zombies. You see them on TV any night of the week if you really want to. But we are still coming to terms with certain aspects of our own science and technology at the moment. The book Ancillary Justice, if anyone's read it, has recently scooped the pools in science fiction awards. And it's really a book that is about a starship's AI, which uses a reanimated body where the main character is seeking revenge for the death of its captain. Obviously a true story. But it gives us a reflection of the involvement of AI in our lives. And so many stories we're coming to, coming to terms with now. So we have The Terminator is an obvious example. Or, on, or in a more humanistic kind of perspective, something like Her. If, you, if you've seen that film, I suggest you go and see it. In the real world, technologies such as IVF were seen as unthinkable only 40 years ago. Today, we don't give them a second thought. So who knows what our future will hold? Now, usually I try and finish my presentations with something pithy and insightful, but I've had enough of that. So what I'm going to do tonight is I'm going to ask you to help me to be my orchestra. You are my instruments tonight. And I want you, on the count of three, down here, to give me your best mad scientist laugh. <laughs> so whether you start off with a ha, 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 or wherever you want to go. But we're going to start low. And we're going to move it up, okay? So one, two, three. <laughs> Thank you very much.